Um, thank you all for coming, uh, and thank you, Neil, for your kind words of introduction. Uh, the, Neil didn't mention the ministry gave me a grant uh, from its awards uh, fund uh, to assist with the preparation of this book. I won't tell you when they gave it to me, but the book has appeared, and that therefore means the money was obviously well spent, and I'm very grateful to them for that assistance, as also from copyright licensing, who gave me another big grant. So... Um, this is the um, part of a, 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 a distillation of some of the arguments in the book. Um, the book, as many people have commented to me, is heavy, not just in argument, but in weight. And it did seem to me that it was reasonable to extract some commentary from it on the assumption that not everyone would have read it from cover to cover who's here today. And so if you have, it will, what I'm having to say will be a little bit familiar to you, but I think uh, probably distilled like this, it will come across more clearly. So, so I chose this image to, uh, as a, to anchor the talk because obviously it's right here. And in fact, I was looking at it and wondering where the photographer had actually stood uh, when they took it. It's an evening post photograph. Maybe Joan will have an answer to that. Uh, but it is from the 10th of May, 1932, which was the biggest uh, single demonstration during the course of the Depression in Wellington. Uh, and this would have been in the afternoon of that day uh, when the crowds waited uh, while there were meetings going in Parliament, hoping that someone would come out and tell them that there was going to be some new initiative or whatever. That never happened. It also happened to be the last day of Parliament, which added to the kind of tension. And it was at the end of this that the uh, rioting took place down Lambton Quay that uh, is often referred to in accounts of the Depression. But it gives you some idea of the scale of the crowd, doesn't it? And it, it allows me to sort of anchor it to this point of whether 1932 was a turning point. And one of the reasons for talking about this was I happened to come across uh, not so long ago Keith Sinclair's um, Short History of New Zealand, which was published in 1959 originally, when he was just uh, in his mid to late 30s. It's quite an extraordinary achievement when you think about it. And I was reminded that in many ways it's from him that comes this particular idea of the Depression. And this is what he said um, about, particularly about 1932. And I'll, I'll leave you to, to read it through. But you probably recognise that particular description, not least because you probably, as, as students at some point, read uh, Keith's uh, history. And so this is very much the notion that this was the, the bottom point and that it was this um, idea that there was this very unresponsive, callous government that had allowed the unemployment system to collapse, that was extremely repressive uh, in a whole variety of ways and refused to contemplate any recovery measures. And a bit later on in the book, uh, Sinclair makes the point that Downey Stewart, who was Minister of Finance, was greatly in awe of bankers, meaning he was much more concerned about the value of money than the value of people. And uh, this, in a way, becomes then a sort of a sequence that leads people to say, well, this was why we had the 1935 election result three and a half years later. And it's possible to trawl through the record and find much other stuff that supports this kind of argument. And I've just instanced some of the examples here. One is, is a kind of reverse finding. The government 
was not visibly made anxious by the riots and the disturbances that, of course, not just affected Wellington, but also Auckland and Dunedin, and even to a degree Christchurch at this time, did not abandon any of its planned laws that went through uh, in April and May of 1932. It went ahead with extending the term of government to four years from the three-year term, which was um, standard, and no heads rolled. No one was uh, held accountable for these disturbances. There was never any inquiry. Uh, there was never any attempt to suggest that because of them, certain courses of action should be taken that hadn't been taken to date. Equally, um, in some respects, and this is an interesting part of it, the Labour Party was, was relatively silent. It was extremely unnerved by the disturbances and the riots. It was taken uh, aback by them. I'll, I'll come back to that a bit later. So it didn't really um, play the kind of role that you might have expected at the time. And a lot of it had to do with this gentleman, who I, I would say is one of the most significant figures in New Zealand political history, but he's not a New Zealander. Anyone know who he is? Jack he's Jack Lang, who was the Premier of New South Wales. Um, the, the extraordinary career of Labour politicians in Australia over this period was ever present in the minds of Labour politicians in New Zealand. The Labour government in Australia had collapsed in ignominy at the end of 1931. Uh, Jack Lang had remained the Premier of New South Wales, but he was in the throes in April and May of 1932 of basically losing his job, and he was sacked by the New South Wales governor at exactly this time in early May. One thing New Zealand Labour politicians did not want to do was to be associated in the public mind, the public mind of those who did not support them but whom they hoped would support them, with people like Jack Lang. The man lived to 99, died in 1975, aged 99, but his moment in history really ended in May 1932. And then on the right, um, you had a whole sort of flurry of activity, uh, which had echoes of the New Guard in Australia, but the context was very different. The New Guard, which was a kind of a neo-fascist organisation, and we can have a big debate about the terminology, and uh, colleague Matthew Cunningham has written very extensively and insightfully about that. But of course, the big difference in New Zealand was you didn't have a Labour government. What, what created all this uh, activity in Australia was the fact of there being Labour governments in office and the, the uh, anger on the right at some of their actions. But in, in New Zealand, it was a little different. So this movement was a little bit um, episodic rather than fundamental. Um, the government made no further changes in unemployment relief as a result of the disturbances. I'll come back to that. That's a very big statement but it did not back off recasting the relief announced on April 23rd. It continued to be absolutely attached to getting the unemployed out of the cities and into the countryside, and, not, and it didn't do anything which stopped unemployment rising. It continued to rise at the peak of unemployment, and of course we could have a whole session on the figures. The statistics was in October 1933, a long time after May 1932. So this is the way to say there's a lot to be said for Sinclair's argument about um, the, the, the nature of the government and the nature of the difficulties and the government's unresponsiveness uh, at the time. And then there's the matter of the Imperial Economic Conference, which was to take place um, in Ottawa, 
between July and August 1932. So this was an event that was long anticipated within the empire. And uh, you would obviously expect um, someone from New Zealand to be represented at it. There are the delegates assembled in front of Parliament House in Ottawa in 1932 in the Northern Hemisphere summer sunshine. So who went to Ottawa from New Zealand? Here's the cabinet, fine upstanding individuals, all men of course. Um, and the choice was obviously between George Forbes, the Prime Minister, because this was a, an important summit conference. There were leaders from every uh, Commonwealth country going. Gordon Coates, of course, who was not the Deputy Prime Minister. That status was not officially recognised. He was the Minister of Public Works and the Minister Curiously, he was the Minister of Charge of Unemployment. And then in the in parliamentary debates for 1932, he becomes the Minister in Charge of Employment. And it ceases to be the Minister in Charge of Unemployment. Someone worked out, obviously, that the naming wasn't that great. And then there's Downey Stewart, who was the Minister of Finance. So, you know, you're in a big crisis in, you've had this massive demonstrations of Wellington, you had Auckland, Queen Street totally demolished by rioters. The countries under his past, they've passed this Public Safety Emergency Act. So obviously uh, they can't all leave the country, can they, because of the depths of the crisis. So which of them do you think was going to go to Ottawa? So I've been teaching, so I'm used to asking <laughs> questions. He did travel, and you're right, he partly travelled because when he was, he went on to London and got some medical advice. Yeah. Shortly after May the 10th, they announced that all three of them were to go to Ottawa. The entire leadership of the government was going to leave the country for five weeks. And this created an uproar, but in the press and in, in what you might call vocal public, but it not, did not create an uproar because people thought this is shocking, the country's in this terrible state of unemployment and so on. It created an uproar because it was seen as scandalous that they should all take off in a junket. <laughs> and, and, but what it of course reflected was the extremely uneasy relations within this cabinet and the feeling that if Joe goes, then Jack is going to be somehow in trouble because things will be happening um, without his knowledge. In the end, the first one to back out was Forbes. His reward was to go to the World Economic Conference in 1933 uh, with Masters, who was one of the other eminent screws of the cabinet. And then Coates, there was a lot of the impression that Coates should not go, that Downey Stewart was the appropriate one. But in the end, Coates and Downey Stewart both went uh, to the conference. So this, again, is a way of saying this was not a government that appeared to re recognise that this unemployment crisis and crisis in the country was such that that, that had to be their primary uh, objective. So just to recap the argument, you had an unresponsive, even brutal government for another three and a half years, and that government paid the price in 1935. Uh, going from that, which is the 1931 election result, I guess you know that in New Zealand red means Labour, not as in the United States, and to that. 
there'll be a few people in the Labour Party today, of course, hoping to see something similar. But I cannot possibly comment on contemporary politics because this is an historical presentation. There are problems, of course. That's how we do things in history, isn't it? You set out something, then you proceed to knock it over. Did nothing happen in between times to alter and improve? Three and a half years is a long time. If you go from now, it's taking you into early 2021. It's a long time to wait. The economy was, in fact, in much better shape late in 1935 than it was in mid 1932. Something had happened in between time that was better rather than worse. And the main answer to date is associated with this gentleman, Gordon Coates. Gordon B. Coates became the Minister of Finance in January 1933. And Sinclair is one of the first ones to make this argument that owing to the concern of the rest of the government, his policy was formulated in accordance with economic and financial criteria, which gave little scope. So he tried, but he was hamstrung by his reactionary colleagues and he was therefore not able to do enough to produce any kind of substantive uh, result. So Coates was good, the rest of the government, this is the refinement of coalition bad, Labour good, coalition bad except Coates, Labour good. It's a sort of a revision, if you like. I don't think this adds up. And much of my book is in a sense about this. And I would argue that what happened in 1932 did actually mark a turning point that we can see percolating through the political and economic system, not after three and a half years, but immediately after the disturbances, but that for reasons which I will explain, it did not produce the kind of economic result that might have improved conditions markedly. And I'm going to look at this in four areas, and I'm going to have to keep an eye on the time. You're going to have to shout out at me if I'm getting too late, Sarah. Okay. Um, those four. So unemployment policy. This is very complicated, and it's one of these sort of timing things that historians, I think, often grapple with when you're trying to navigate your way, particularly around policy documents. The unemployment board was... The, the big, one of the big issues at this time, and the one that had generated a lot of the disturbances, was the issue of the stand-down week. You probably know the underlying idea, that if you're unemployed, you could register and get relief, but you could only get it for three weeks out of four. The fourth week, you were stood down. And this became a major issue of debate, partly because the unemployment people said, well, that week, if you have any, if you need, you go to the hospital board, the charitable aid board. You don't come to unemployment. So people were going back and forth and back and forth. It's the kind of thing we're familiar with in debates about uh, individuals dealing with bureaucracies today. But it was very, very acute because the numbers were so substantial and the hospital boards were trying themselves to manage um, demand for their services, which had exploded far beyond anything which their budgets were used to coping with. So, but when you look at the unemployment board records, right from early March, and indeed right back in January, they're discussing ending the stand-down week, and what they're trying to work out is how to, what to replace it with. And the general idea is, yes, we are going to make all unemployed eligible for four weeks of relief. Um, but you can see they were meeting frequently about this, and what makes it very interesting challenging to work out the cause and effect is they met all the time before the Auckland disturbances and then they were meeting after it. And at these meetings, finally, Coates, who was the minister, was actually attending. He had played very little 
role in the board's deliberations uh, for six months because of a lot of other things that he was preoccupied with. So there's a lot of confusion, and it's capsulated by the fact that the Aucklanders were protesting about the abolition of the Stand Down Week in Wellington on May the 10th, the picture I started with, after the announcement had been made by Coates that the week would be abolished. Wellington was protesting about it being abolished, and that was not because they were less educated or intelligent than Auckland protesters, because the scheme that had been indicated to replace it was seen as being far too um, limited. So, um, but I, I think it's undeniable that the policy changed and that it partly changed because of the disturbances, even though the actual sequence is a little bit difficult. And certainly after May 32, the Unemployment Board had much, much more money Indeed, one of the controversies that developed about it by 1934 was that it had so much money, but it wasn't spending it. It was also much more active, and this was partly because it had now taken over the unemployed completely. The hospital boards, in a sense, were out of the picture. And the administration was, I would argue, more systematic, although it could by no stretch of the imagination be called more generous or more kind. So I think there is a change that comes out of the disturbances, but it's not particularly obvious in a, in a kind of a headline way. And the same to do with austerity. I mean, by austerity, we mean a government that's determined to balance its budget, to cut back costs, irrespective of the human consequences of such a policy. And the fact is that really after the disturbances, that policy was in many ways abandoned although it was never headlined because the government was far more sensitive to the opinions of financial interests, not just in New Zealand but in London, as they were to human concerns. So they didn't make a big deal about it, but they actually ran a deficit for 31-32 and they ran a deficit again in 1932-33 of quite a substantial amount, around £2 million at a time when revenue was £21 million. Uh, they did it initially, basically, they, did a, they, they covered it by um, not borrowing. They sold mortgages. Fascinating thing. They had a lot of mortgages and they sold them, which meant they were never going to get the interest on those mortgages ever again. Someone else would get it. But it meant they could, as it were, help balance the books. But the even more interesting one is the fate of the National Expenditure Review. You're probably familiar with the notion that the, the Expenditure Adjustment Act, which cut back spending in a whole variety of areas, and the, the famous one is that the, so one department's cat was, was fired because they couldn't afford to give it milk. And the, you know, these are wonderful sort of urban stories. Um, but... And, and the second part, of the, the, the bit that's most often known about is the first part, the, the interim report that was released while Parliament was sitting in the first part of 1932. The second part was not completed until the end of June 1932. And the, the government sat on it for three months because they were so, by then, having in a sense been affected by the disturbances, they actually weren't prepared to keep on going. This, this was quite an ideological report, ironically by people commissioned by the government to do it. And this is the kind of thing they said about social services. And you can see that they're not just talking about the depression, they're taking an axe to the whole notion of the extravagance of social services since the beginning of the First World War. And this ideological um, coloration is the whole document is saturated in it. And 
What's clear is that the government had lost its stomach for this kind of cutting at all, because firstly, they sat on the report for three months, didn't release it. And then when they did, they were basically uh, dismissed it. So, for instance, Forbes said about the hospital, it's very like the kind of thing that was done in the 80s, very similar. Suggested reorganization of the hospital is revolutionary and cannot be accepted without the most careful consideration. Well, you know what that means when a politician says. <laughs> and in any case, the savings anticipated could not be obtained for some years. With respect to other social services, this is wonderful. Public opinion must play an important part in an effective economy campaign. That means if the public doesn't want it, we're not going to do it. And they didn't. There were no further tax increases, and they did not implement really any of the proposals in that second uh, report. And then there was this curious episode. One of the um, members of that commission was an elderly gentleman called McIntosh, who was a Wellington figure. Um, and he added his own addendum to the report, where he said this, the financial difficulties under which the Dominion is labouring are in large measure attributed to the people themselves through their representatives of Parliament. What he was really saying was it was the politicians who were responsible for the mess the country was in because they spent money extravagantly for the sole purpose of getting back into Parliament. Well, if there's one thing you want to do that upsets politicians, it's to attack all of them for their um, lack of uh, altruism in conducting the affairs of the country. And this statement united the entire Parliament against poor Mr. McIntosh, and he was summoned before the Privileges Committee uh, for this statement, as were the newspapers who had reported it uh, as, as kind of accessories after the fact. And it was only because of his age and state of health that in the end no penalty was imposed on him. But it was a real comment about the political limits that had become set to the notion of continuing a policy of austerity. It left a lot of bitterness, which helped fuel the New Zealand Legion. But as I say, the real, to me, the real message of it was that this government had lost its stomach for going further than it already had. It also was a turning point for Labour Party. And that, I think, was because it was caught totally unawares by the advance of the United Unemployed Workers Movement, which was very much the dynamic of the, many of the demonstrations and disturbances. What Labour was totally focused on was the wage cuts, which goes alongside it. And, um, in fact, I commented to someone at the library here that one of the demonstrations <laughs> which was identified in the caption as an unemployed demonstration, was clearly a wage cut demonstration uh, because of the placards people were holding. And these two things operated in different, as it were, emotional and actual domains. They collided as classically on the night of 14th of April in Auckland, but they were different mainsprings to them. And this, of course, partly reflected the fact that for someone who was in work, an unemployed worker was a threat. A potential threat. So the New Zealand worker had heaps of headlines like this, the, the Labour Party Weekly, uh, but it had relatively little coverage of the unemployed. And this was something that was redressed in the wake of the disturbances. Labour Party was determined to recover that ground, and it worked very hard after that to establish itself 
amongst the unemployed population with a lot of uh, turf wars uh, in consequence. And this really intensified incentives from recent history, the, the, the fate of Labour governments in Australia, what had happened in 1928 when Ward had, as it were, stolen the election from the Labour Party to their way of thinking, 1931 where United was effectively put on life support by the Reform Party, and Labour's deep scepticism of any rival political movement, any rival political anything, be it the country party, be it the New Zealand Legion, be it the Democrats, be it the communists, be it whatever. Um, it's a real strand through Labour Party thinking and, and what happened in April, May 1932 has a lot to do with it, I think. But then, and to me, this is the most interesting one of the urban elites, because this is where you normally expect to see the reaction. These are the reactionary people who didn't care about the workers. They were sitting in their nice houses in Kandala and Karori and Fendleton, whatever, with, with heaps of servants, you know, who they would then uh, abuse or whatever, and they had no concern about the population. But again, this story is really not, it's not simply that simple because urban elites may be self-interested, but one of those self-interests is about stability. And one of the disturbing things about the, 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 the riots, of course, was what it meant for the stability of the cities. And it's interesting that John A. Lee reports Auckland Labour MPs meeting with these gentlemen, of whom that's Oliver Nicholson, um, Bankart and Wilson, in the immediate aftermath of the Auckland disturbances. If it's a private meeting, uh, and you know, because it's John A. Lee, you can never feel entirely certain that it actually happened, but it has the feel of truth to it, to borrow a phrase. And um, it's sort of interesting. I mean, I don't imagine, I don't venture to know how many of you are aware of who those individuals were, but they were at the absolute summit of New Zealand business and financial life in the 1920s and 30s. Um, and Nicholson doesn't even have an entry in the Dictionary of New Zealand Biography. Um, and so they, they played an important role in the channel, in the corridors of power, but they were largely backroom people. Um, but the fact that that happened is, is kind of interesting. And one of the things I think that happens at that point is that they become aware that you actually can't solve the unemployment problem by turfing everyone into the countryside, that it's simply not going to work and that you have to come up with other solutions. But what you also increasingly get are people on that side of the political spectrum advocating what we would now call expansionist policy. And this is one of the early, and this is, it's, it's, it's got many facets, but this is an example. Joel was a MP from Hawke's Bay, he's actually Canadian, and he was a background in hotel keeping, which of course, and then he came up with this, I'm not easily frightened by any signs or signs of inflation, deflation, or any other inflation. The notion that you would be countenancing inflation was the classic way you uh, threw an opponent off course. Uh, it, it, so you argue for expansion, oh, you just want to destroy the value of money um, and, and so on and so forth. So someone getting up and saying this was significant. But what's interesting is the number of other people who continue to do so all through 1932. So Mary Elizabeth Richin, a doyen of the Richmond Atkinson family, of course, she was pretty elderly uh, in 1932, but she was a great writer and publicist. She wrote this, published this pamphlet, Money and the Moral Thermometer. She was very much anti-communist, very Christian. What we ask of capital today is that it should devise constructive work and employ people. I believe that the wise gaining, lending and spending of money is a means towards this. And then you get 
this fellow, William Matchin, who ran now the Associated Chambers of Commerce, again, seen as a very reactionary organisation. Don't raise taxes. Uh, don't place any burden on us. Uh, the unemployed, you know, if we cut their wages, if, if we cut the wages of the workers, then more people will be hired. And so for classic, you know, classical economic thing. So Matchin, who's captured as one of the figures in this cartoon from 1933, he said this, and this was a lead article in the New Zealand Financial Times, which was a very prominent uh, publication through the uh, 1930s, oddly run by Howard Elliott, who's probably known to most of you as the head of the Protestant Political Association, but he had the second life as an editor of a financial journal. And he wrote this, which again, I won't read out entirely, but what he's basically saying is we've got to start people spending. At the moment, people are just sitting on their money and we should be encouraging people to spend. And then he really attacks the austerity policy. We can continue lopping term, but, you know, reference to the wage cuts and so on. 10% off here, 20% there, da 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 And he's really saying we've got to look at other forms of, exp forms of expansion and we can't be scared off by this word inflation. So this is the head of the Associated Chambers of Commerce saying this. And... It's interesting, I, don't, I think he was probably a bit out on a limb, but the fact that he says it and it's published in the Financial Times is, I think, indicative. And then you get um, a women's magazine. The New Zealand Women's Weekly started publishing in December 1932, a very odd time to start a magazine, one would have thought, um, and published continuously ever since. This is um, the uh, 19 January 1932, three issue, I think, uh, yeah, early 33. But the point I want to take is from this particular observation that it made in its first issue. Older people, particularly and those with families to educate and provide for, have been warned about rainy days and the desirability of providing for them. This should be foregone at a time when the economy needs spenders. Now, obviously, one of the one things they wanted people to spend on was buying the New Zealand Women's Weekly. But the very fact that a relatively orthodox journal like this was making this point tells you something about the mood in the cities in 1932. So a lot's going on. And that, that's my list of, of things to explain, 10 minutes? Okay, thanks. To explain uh, why we can argue that the disturbances were in fact a turning point and not one that just produced a result in 1935. So why did it all go wrong? Why did we not have a recovery in 1933 or even in 1932? So here's my new uh, bogeyman, <laughs> the farmer. It's not really. Um, the, the rural economy had placed a huge weight of expectation on the Ottawa conference because they believed it would raise prices internationally. And this, this to the conservative end of the political spectrum was the way you did it. You did not try to mess with the price system within New Zealand. You did it, you waited for it to happen globally and Ottawa was going to do that. Interestingly, Ottawa today is remembered for the incredibly intricate deals it made about tariffs and trade access. And it's forgotten that the biggest expectation was it would have an effect on monetary policy. And it didn't because the British were not prepared to contemplate uh, having already made a huge departure by taking sterling off gold the year before to do anything more. And you can read the accounts and see the way all the Dominion premiers are lobbying on the British to, to ease up monetary policy and, and nothing happens. So. 
After Ottawa, it's kind of a dud. The new season starts in New Zealand, September, October. Prices do not rise for commodities. And so there's all these new calls for what, what we would call a devaluation, but people then called raising the exchange, by which they mean you make the New Zealand pound worth less in terms of British currency, and that means the farmer, when they are paid in Britain, will get more money back in their pocket. Don't ask me to explain it more than that, but it's, it's, it's pretty simple, really. And so there's the, there they are waiting. Charismatic group, aren't they? That's the <laughs> cabinet on a rainy day on board the ship when Coates has come back in September 1932. Yeah, great hats. Um, so so the, a huge amount of pressure came on the government uh, through the latter part of 1932. And this is the kind of headline you got. This is from Truth, which was very big on this issue and utterly hostile to, to raising the exchange. Banks declare a coalition unlikely to cut its own throat, meaning that the coalition will not contemplate uh, devaluing the currency. Well, of course, that was November the 30th, 1932, uh, and um, seven weeks later, that's exactly what they did. Uh, and it was widely supported by the rural population, but was unanimously opposed by everyone else. And so, you know, the, it's absolutely true that in many ways it was the right thing to do, and the economists and Coates were right, but it's, it's important to remember that the, there was absolutely no support from it beyond the, urban, beyond the rural community. And, it was, and even like the Phoenix, you know, the, the magazine that was started by Jeff Bertram, uh, Jeff Bertram, that's a Freudian slip. Uh, James Bertram and run by R.A.K. Mason in 1933 had a long statement about how iniquitous the policy was. Uh, so you get a situation where, and conservatives are opposed to it because they want more fiscal caution, but an equally large amount of conservative opinion is opposed to it because it's seen as stopping an, exp an appropriate expansion of the economy. So you get a thing like April 33, all these shops uh, to let in Karanga Happy Road in Auckland. And I would argue that one of the reasons the New Zealand Legion fell over was because it couldn't reconcile its conservative instincts with the strong pressure from its own membership to adopt an expansionist policy. Labour had a great success in May 33 local elections. And so civic leaders across the country, but particularly in Auckland, which was the city which was hardest hit in many ways by the Depression, become very, very vocal about demanding the government do something. This was the mayor of Auckland, George Hutchison, uh, uh, on the conservative side of the political spectrum. This was what uh, Archbishop Liston wrote uh, in support of a delegation led by Hutchison uh, at this time. And again, attacking the notion of um, what they still see as the government not doing enough, but also, although it doesn't come out through this, um, that the policy of, of, of devaluing, while it may have helped the farmers, was not helping anyone else. That was very much the view. Um, so they, they went and visited Coates. Um, Forbes was off in London at the World Economic Conference. And Coates basically said, can't do that. As in particular, we're not going to expand public works in the way that, that you want. Um, there, there's, a, there's another story to that, but I, I won't go into it now. So there's an impasse. 
The rural economy is benefiting, well, most of it, not so much the dairy industry, but the urban economy, and exactly what Matchin had said back in August, the traders are sitting on their seats and importers are not importing. They're not importing because they don't think this change in the exchange rate is going to last. So you're not going to pay an extra 15% for a good if you think in six months' time you don't have to. So it's seized up the entire uh, system. And that really remained true uh, right through 1933. The unemployment kept rising and um, the number of unemployed did not really uh, sink very significantly in that period, although it, it, there's a seasonal cycle, of course, to it. And we could talk endlessly about how these numbers are calculated, but, uh, and as you probably know, only statistics are only gathered for adult males in a systematic way. But you get an idea of how subdued the trend is. Um, and then you get a bit of a change in 1934, 35, and, one of the, and I could talk about many aspects of it. One of the most interesting ones was the Reserve Bank of New Zealand came into existence on August the 1st, 1934. And at that point, it made a statement that it was not going to alter the exchange rate. And that seems to have kind of created a psychological shift in people, that they, in traders in particular, because importing after that starts to pick up. And as it happens, 1934-35 is a relatively buoyant year. This shows the movement on the stock market of shares, and it's a little difficult for you to see, but you'll see there's a general trend upwards quite markedly, uh, up into 1934-35, and so you were getting a result, but you'd had that 18 months where really very little happened. Um, it also sl slides down again once the Labour government gets in because people are so sceptical of how to make money under a Labour government. Um, but that's another story. But there was not a big impact on employment. So it was 1932 a turning point? Yes, I think it was, but not in the way that we usually think. It, I think it did, in a sense, kill the austerity policy, although, as I say, it's curious because the government did, want, did not want to really indicate that, even though in practice it was running these deficits. And, but the political, commercial and farmers were divided about how to go forward, and the result is I think you get these two years of impasse. And if you ask me a question, oh, well, should they have devalued or shouldn't, I would say, well, they probably should have, but it's a very interesting thing where you have this intersection between policy and people's expectations. And just as today we cite figures about conf consumer confidence as one measure of economic activity, so in a sense that was true during the Depression. And quite how you would have got out of that impasse, I, to be honest, would not be happy to, to try to explain. By the time the expansion came, Labour was in a much strengthened position. It did even better in May 1935. The 35 election, November, did not come out of nowhere. Um, it was already, in a sense, anticipated. Uh, and so we go from that to that.